So Friday afternoon, or Friday, we left in the morning, but mostly in the afternoon, I spent the day fly fishing, which is not something I do uh, more than once a year. But my good friend Jim Bingley takes mercy on me and, and takes me out, and he, I can't tie all the flies, and he takes me fishing. And so I spent a lot of time Friday doing this all day long. And then yesterday afternoon, I got home about, I don't know, 12, 30, 1 o'clock, and from then till about 5, I spent the afternoon raking in my front yard, going doing a lot of motions like this. So the benediction today might kind of look like this. Because I'm a little bit tied up in here, uh, but that actually serves as a point for the sermon this morning, believe it or not. So I want you to know my pain is going to help you all quite a bit. Um, the reason I'm stiff and sore is because those are muscles that I, I don't use. Uh, you'd have a hard time figuring out what muscles I do use, but um, those kind of neck and shoulder muscles are muscles that, that as, as you get older, I don't know, maybe you hire somebody to do your leaves or whatever, you, do, you, may, you just don't exercise them quite as much, and so I'm finding myself a little bit on the stiff side this morning, but I was thinking about the sermon, and this is my really my last kind of full-blown sermon at Green Tree in 2014. Uh, next week, as I said, the kids are going to do a good bit of the service, and then Christmas Eve is, is abbreviated. It's a little bit shorter. It tends to just kind of be you know more focused on Christmas, so this is really uh, my last chance to, to think about uh, Green Tree together with you in the Word of God, and... We've been spending a lot of time, as I said, in November looking back, so as I, as I look ahead, now the question I've been asking myself is what muscles will we be exercising in the, in the year to come? How will we be moving and, and growing together in the kingdom of God in 2015? And is going to be an interesting year because we're going to do something we've never, ever done in the history of Green Tree. We're going to move into a permanent worship and ministry facility. And I think for a lot of us, we are, we're mostly excited. You know, I'll say for myself, I'm like 89.7% excited. But there's that little bit that just kind of says, are, are we going to continue to be the church that God has called us to be? Or will having a building make us something that we never really intended? And I think, it's, it's, I think that's about the right balance. I think about 90% excited, about 10% um, caution is probably the right way to think about it. Because there is going to be a temptation to be more just focused on, hey, we've got a building, we kind of sit back and relax. So it really depends on what muscles we're going to exercise when it comes to our faith in God. And uh, that led me down another pathway of thought, which was, if I were going to jot down some words to describe Green Tree Community Church, as I've experienced it over the last 15-ish years, I guess now almost 16 years, uh, how would I describe Green Tree? So I, I jotted down a couple words, and I would encourage you to think about that. If you've been at Green Tree a little while, what are words that you would use to describe? If you're new to Green Tree or busy with Green Tree, what kind of church would you like it to be? What do you hope you experience when you walk through our doors, whether it's this year here in the Bulldog Cafeteria or later next year, next fall, when we move into a new facility? What kind of experience would you like to have in a church setting? So some of the words I wrote down, I wrote down, Green Tree, I feel, has always been a safe place. It's always been a place where people could come just as they are and really deal with God on that level. They don't have to dress up and act a certain way or look a certain way. Um, they, can, they can come regardless of a faith journey uh, that they're deeply involved or one that they haven't even really started yet. Uh, the second word I wrote down was, was the word humility. I really sense that a lot of people at Green Tree are very 
deeply connected with the grace of God in the context of their own sinfulness. In other words, they understand that it is by God's grace that we're saved, and that leads to a life of humility, not a life of arrogance. Third word, I wrote down four words. Third word I wrote down was kind of going out of humility was graciousness. Uh, I feel like for the most part, Green Tree is a place where the grace of God is exhibited on a regular basis. And my fourth word was the word truth, uh, that we, we seek to stand on God's word. I always bring a Bible, a physical Bible with me to church. I know that there are touchpads and phones. A lot of you, I, I watch as you're following along in the sermon and you're doing it electronically or you're, or you're texting a good friend in, in Tijuana, um, but you look like maybe you're following along. I, I know there are other modes to, to read scripture, but I always bring a Bible with me because it reminds me that we stand on the truth of, of God's word. That being the case, as we move forward as a congregation, what will we look like is the thought that's been going through my mind. And it brings me back to the importance of the genealogy of Jesus. We've been looking at last week and, and this week, uh, this list in Matthew chapter 1 in, his, in the gospel where he talks about Jesus' ancestors, where he talks about kind of our, called it our, our Christmas family tree. Who are those folks that have come before us in the faith, so to speak? And this morning, uh, we're going to look at one of the central characters of the Old Testament, certainly one of the most famous people in Scripture. But as we begin to, to think about that, and we think about in the context of who do we want to be as a church, let's read Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, and then verse 16. Matthew introduces his work by saying, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Excuse me. Uh, Sarah by Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Then down to verse 16, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word, to him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, uh, what we can gather from a list of names, and in particular settling on one of these names, um, may seem inconsequential to us this morning. We can say it just so happened that Jesus was born in, in this lineage, and yet at, at closer inspection what we will discover is there's the work of grace and mercy all the way through the ancestry of Jesus. That if, if the word of God paints anything, it paints our, our need for a Savior. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach that to us this morning. Lord, perhaps for many of us, it's a reminder. We understand that, that it is by grace that we're saved. And we understand that, that we don't need someone who can help us fix our own lives, but rather we need a Savior. Father, maybe for some of us, we've never considered that thought. We're doing pretty well in life. We, we behave ourselves most of the time. We do a few things wrong, but... But all in all, we're, we're pretty good people, and our sense is that you'll, you'll accept us because, uh, because we're doing better than a lot of other folks. And Lord, we, uh, we kind of just turn a blind eye to uh, the things that we don't want to see about ourselves. 
So, Father, wherever we are in that, in that spectrum, I pray that you would help us to understand how desperately we need a Savior. Lord, I pray these would not be my words, but yours. We come to hear what you say, Lord, not what any man says. Father, forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want to teach us this morning. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to consider King David this morning. Uh, whether or not you've been around the, the church a long time or maybe just a little time, whether you're well-versed in the Scriptures or whether perhaps you have not read them very much at all, the chances are that you've heard of David in some context or another. If you go back and you look at the Old Testament uh, of the Bible, Genesis through Malachi, uh, the first 39 books of the Bible, you will find that David is one of the most prominent names in the Old Testament. In fact, as you read into the New Testament, you will find David's name mentioned in the New Testament as well. If I were going to list uh, the, the top three of the Old Testament, they would be Abraham and Moses and David the king. David was the youngest in his family. He was the shepherd boy, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But he became the king of the nation of Israel. In fact, he became uh, probably the, the greatest or the second greatest king in that nation's history. He was the object of God's covenant promise. God said to David, I'm going to make sure that for all of eternity, one of your sons sits on your throne. That's quite a promise for God to make. God didn't say for your lifetime and the next lifetime and for 10 or 12 lifetimes your line of royalty will continue. God said to David, there will always be someone on the throne who is from your line. In other words, through the line of David comes the Messiah, comes the Christ. And that's part of what Matthew chapter 1 is all about. Now, as we're going to see this morning, there are a good number of things in David's life for which he is commendable. And much like the, the folks gathered in this room this morning, uh, probably everybody here can look at their life and say, you know, I've done some things right. There are some things on the positive side of the ledger. And we're going to look at those things. We want to we credit David where credit is due. But there's a flip side to David as well, just like there's a flip side to your life and to my life that we don't necessarily come in on Sunday morning and say, let me tell you about the three ways this last week I was really an evil person. <laughs> And let me tell you a couple things that I did that really dishonored God. You have 15 or 20 minutes, I just like to roll all that out and share it with you. So you really get a clear picture of my need for a Savior. We don't tend to exercise that kind of confession of sin, although it would more than likely be very good for us. So we're tempted to look at David's good side and not necessarily look at the flip side. But we're going to look at both this morning because the sermon in the sentence is simply this. Everybody needs a Savior, even good people. The way that sentence should really need is everybody needs a Savior, even people who think they're good. That might be a better way to say it. So let's spend a few minutes looking at the goodness of David. And we're actually going to go back to 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel this morning. The passages will be on the screen. If you want to, uh, if you want to read this story, you'll notice the chapters uh, that they're in. You can go back and read it in, in its fullness. But I'm just going to pull some verses out of Scripture to, to make the points. The first is this, that David at a very early age, was a, was a, I call him a man of faith in a boy's body. When David was 15, 16, 17 years old, he had a very deep and abiding faith in God. In chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, we read the story of David's confrontation of Goliath. And again, if, again, you don't have to be around church a whole lot to think, oh wait, David and Goliath, I've, I've heard that story. That's where the little guy 
beats the big guy. And that's exactly right. David isn't even a soldier at this point in his life. He's a shepherd. He's the youngest of his family, gangly little teenager, no military experience, not a king yet. And he comes upon the camp of the army of Israel. Now he's there on a mission. His father has sent him with food for his brothers, all of whom are serving in the army, but none of whom are fighting right now. And the reason they're not fighting is that they're lined up on one side of the valley and their enemies, the Philistines, are lined up on the other side of the valley. And every day, this giant of a man, Goliath, who's about nine feet tall, comes out and stands in the middle of the field and screams obscenities at the, at the nation of Israel, the army of Israel, and screams obscenities at their God. And, and here is Goliath, who is fearless. Here is Goliath, who is, who is armed to the teeth with the latest weaponry. Here's Goliath who is defying an entire nation. He's the icon of human prowess. As I said, he has no fear, and he also is godless. And he is mocking Israel. So why don't you guys come on and fight? Why are you so scared if your God is so great? And I'm saying it very politely. The Old Testament text would lead us to believe that whatever profanity was out there at the time, Goliath was using it as he mocked the people of Israel. And here comes little punk teenager, sorry I didn't offend any teenagers here, but here comes, compared to Goliath, here comes little gangly David, maybe 16, maybe 17 years old, skinny little guy, right, been out herding the sheep, never probably lifted a sword in his life, and he looks around, he goes, what is going on here? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Notice David's focus. He's not looking at the army of Israel and go, well, you guys got a guy that could match Goliath. Send out Fred. Look at Fred's almost nine feet tall. He can take him on. No. He doesn't go, oh, look at our King Saul. He's a great military strategist. He'll figure it all out. He doesn't say that either. He says, why does this guy think he can stand against God's army? He's a young man, but a man of faith that is deep. And so he stands before the king, and he says, I'll take, this, I'll take on this giant. I'll fight him. Not because I'm great, but because God is great. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hands of this Philistine. David understands if he's going out there on his own, he's as good as dead. He He can't represent the army. He would be their worst choice. And yet he's putting his faith and his trust in God. And so what we end up with is the story of David and Goliath, where David takes a slingshot. And he gets the smooth stones and he goes and he buries one in in Goliath's forehead, even as Goliath is mocking God, right? And he falls to the ground and David takes Goliath's own sword, which is probably almost as tall as David, and manages to cut off Goliath's head. And that story is known throughout the world. Again, when you hear the the notion of a David and Goliath story, in fact, I've got an image I'll I'll throw on the screen for you real quick. In uh, Tiananmen Square in in communist China back in 1989, and I don't know if you see the, the gentleman down and standing in front of the tank. You know, and there, there's a column of tanks. Actually, if you pan back and you look at that picture from a wider angle lens, there are, there are a lot of tanks behind that one. And every time that tank would try to move one side, that guy would just simply move, and he would just stand in front of him, kind of a David and Goliath-type story. And here's, here's this young man of faith. He's focused on God. He's focused on God delivering him read a, a story earlier this week of a time in Kansas where there was a terrible drought. And it had gone on for weeks and weeks and then into, into a couple months. And so the pastor of the local church said, we're going to have a prayer meeting. We're going to call everybody together. And we're going to gather the church and we're going to pray and we're going to pray for rain. And as they're gathering to pray for rain, they notice there's a, a young lady in the church, maybe about sixth grade age, and she's coming into the prayer meeting and she's carrying an umbrella. 
right? You're going to pray for rain, you might want to bring an umbrella with you to the prayer meeting. That's called faith. That's called believing and trusting in God, not in your own strength and ability. And that certainly describes David in 1 Samuel 17. The, David's faith there is, is impressive, and we should note that. Let's go to the Psalms for just a minute, and let's talk about David not just as a man of faith in a boy's body, but let's remember David also as an inspired poet. These are probably the most famous words in all of Scripture, maybe even more so than the Lord's Prayer, maybe even more so than John 3.16. The 23rd Psalm is something that's been read all over the world for millennia. And I'm going to read it for us again this morning. Many of you probably know it by heart. Uh, so if you want to just close your eyes and listen, that's okay. I doubt this is brand new to anybody, but maybe there are a few that for whom this will be new. But listen to the poetry. Listen to the glory and the beauty and the inspiration of these few sentences. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That poem speaks to the deepest of human emotions. I researched and looked back at, at the funeral uh, services of, of presidents, United States presidents that have passed away, ones that I could find, and, and several of them. This was part of the service, the reading of the 23rd Psalm. Why? Because look at what's involved in this psalm. David speaks of God's care. He pictures the Lord as a shepherd who is looking out for his sheep. He talks about not only God's care, but his guidance as the shepherd leads his sheep, whether that be through gentle flowing uh, uh, streams and pastures, where they can lie down in comfort and ease, or whether it's through the valley of the shadow of death, God is leading. He never abandons his people. The, the psalm speaks of safety and rest for those who trust in the Lord. They speak of potential fear and conflict. You set a table for me where in the presence of my enemies, David's finding a very poetic way of saying my life is not an easy life all the time. There are, there are people who are out to get me. I have struggles and difficulties in my own life, and yet what God is ever with me. He is my provision. He is compassionate. He's the one who leads gently and, and with care for his people. Whether it be in death, the valley of the shadow of death, or in the presence of my enemies, I have nothing to fear because the Lord is with me. And my life ultimately forever and ever and ever is through God. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What an amazingly inspired piece of poetry. That came from the, the pen, the quill uh, of David, the warrior poet, the inspired poet, man of faith in a boy's body, inspired poet, but also David was very compassionate in his dealing with some of his enemies. In 1 Samuel 24, an exchange happens between David, and I mentioned earlier the king, before David was King Saul. 
And this event takes place after David has been promised by God through the prophet Samuel that God's going to take Saul off of the throne and he's going to replace him with David. David knows he's going to be king. He has that promise from God. But David is is hiding out of fear for his life because Saul, who should be David's number one supporter, is out to kill him. Later in Saul's life, Saul became deranged a bit and, and he lost focus on what was really true. He lost focus on his relationship with God. And in doing so, he felt very, uh, he felt very um, fearful of David growing in popularity to the extent that he tried to kill him on several occasions. Saul would come back from battle and the people of the towns would sing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And that really ticked Saul off. And Saul was going to hold on to the throne no matter what, to the point where, he, again, he, several times he tried to kill David. And this story takes place in a cave where Saul and David are both present, except Saul doesn't know David's there. And David's hiding in this cave, and Saul's unaware of David's presence. And, and David, one of David's men says to him, here's your chance. God's promised you the throne. Just sneak up behind him and slip a knife between his shoulder blades, and we'll go into Jerusalem and we'll take over. Here's how God is going to fulfill the promise. Go ahead and kill Saul. And David says, God forbid. I am not going to lift a hand against the Lord's anointed. If God wants to take Saul off the throne, God can do that the way God wants to. But I am not going to interject and do the wrong thing that would dishonor God. So a few minutes later, they're standing on opposite sides of this valley, and David yells out to Saul. And he says, I want you to know I'm here. And then this exchange takes place. David says, behold this day, your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. In other words, I could have killed you today, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. See, my father, this, see the corner of your robe in my hand. So he had, he had taken a piece when his buddy told him to stab him. He didn't stab him, but he cut a piece of his robe off. He was that close to him. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your rope and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you. David is merciful to an enemy that he could have, he could have worked it out on his own mind that it, that it was reasonable to do this man in. All this says that David is one of the most admirable men in all of scriptures. If you could earn your way into salvation by doing some good things, David certainly qualifies for a lot of really good things, but there's a flip side to the coin. You see, David needs a Savior. And I want to point out just a few reasons in the life of David why he needs a Savior. And I'm going to start with uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to spend most of our time, in, uh, the rest of our time in chapter 11. The first thing I've seen is that David's a slacker. I just like that word. I, I wanted to say slacker this morning, but it's true. David had responsibilities that he, for which he didn't follow through. He was given a job, and he, he was fully capable of doing it. He, he should have been fully motivated to do it, and he didn't bother. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, the roads have dried, the sun's come out, we can now have sure footing. If there's an enemy, we need to go fight. What happens? David leads the army. No. David sends Joab, who's the general, and his servants with him, and all Israel, all the army of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem, not where he should have been, ignoring his God-given responsibility. God had said to David, you lead the armies, and I'll give your enemies into your hands. 
not delegate, not give it to somebody else. You go where you're supposed to go, do what you're supposed to do, and I will be with you. Scripture doesn't say why David didn't go, but my guess is he's been king for a while now. He's got a nice palace, got satellite TV, he's got all the latest stuff. He probably doesn't want to leave the house. And by the way, it's just the Ammonites. They're not that big of, a, of an enemy anyway. Joab, you, you know what? Let's talk a little strategy before you go, but you can handle it. I, you know, the king doesn't always need to get his hands dirty. I just want to hang out and be king in Jerusalem. The wrong place at the wrong time, and you know what's going to happen. Something, something wrong because David's being a slacker. He's not following through on that which God has given to do. And we find we go from being a slacker to being an adulterer. So David's in the wrong place late in the afternoon. David was walking on the roof of the king's house. He's enjoying this beautiful sunny afternoon in this nice little palace of his. And he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. So David asked about her. And he was told right up front, this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Okay? David, she's a married woman. You ought to be out in the field commanding the army. You ought to be doing what you're supposed to do, but you're back here in Jerusalem. But don't make matters worse. Don't build on one mistake to another mistake. This is another man's wife. So David took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. And then the woman conceived, and she sent word to David, I am pregnant. You say, well, why did Bathsheba go? Because you don't say no to a king. A king has all authority. A king has all power. And here's David abusing his power. Here's David the, 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 the man of faith, the inspired poet, the merciful one to his enemies, here he is, the epitome of selfishness. I want what I want, and I have it within my power to take it, and so I'm going to take it. It's really all about me. Or as the great theological uh, rock group of the 1970s, Cheap Trick, said, that was a good segue, no, you, Cheap Trick fans, I want you to want me. Y'all are so much better in the first service. It took them a little while to get going. I need you to. I'd love you to. There you go. It's all about me. It's all about what you're going to give me. David makes it all about himself, and because he has the power to do so, he takes this woman and, and he violates her. And then he ignores her because later on she had to send word to him. He doesn't care about her. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't say, hey, bring her back so I can apologize. He didn't say, you know, what I really did was wrong. He didn't even, even offer her a kindness. Several weeks later, I'm not sure how long it is from, from, from when you f uh, find out you're pregnant, but I, I think like six or eight weeks, right? So somewhere down the road, she has, to, she has to call him and say, guess what? Guess what happened here? Now what are we going to do? Now what are you going to do? I'm pregnant. David exercises probably the most selfish act a person could commit in the midst of a marriage relationship. Both of them are married. And he does what he wants to do. He's in the wrong place. Now his mind is wandering. Now he sees something he wants because he has the power. He takes it. And he goes from being a slacker to being an adulterer to being a liar. Because now what's he going to do? Because now this woman is pregnant and she has a husband. And he actually lives next door to David. And he's actually in the army. He's probably one of David's, he is in fact, Scripture tells us, one of David's mighty men. He's one of the guys that has been with David through thick and thin. He's one of the guys that has said to David, you know, we're, we're going to fight, and if, and if we got to die, I'm going to die right next to you, okay? So let's get the context straight here. This is one of David's good friends. So now he's got to figure out a way to fix it. Well, the right way to fix it is to repent and to confess the sin, but David isn't going to go there. He's going to turn into actually a, a big, fat liar. So David sends word to the general under false pretenses. Send me Uriah. 
So when Uriah came, David asked, how's Joab doing? How's the war going? Oh, so they sit down, they have a nice conversation. Joab says, or, uh, Uriah says, we're doing great, everything's fine. And David says, you know what, go home, go see your wife. So Uriah leaves, and he walks outside, and he goes to the door of the, of the palace, and he sits down, and he falls asleep there. And David finds out the next morning, and he calls him in. He says, why, why didn't you go home? You, you know, you, you live right next door, go see your wife, right? He's going to lie about this thing, he's going to cover it up, he's going to walk away scot-free. And Uriah says, I don't know what kind of man you think I am. But the Lord's army is out in the field. They're, they're risking their life. So you and I can sit here and have a nice, quiet conversation. How could I possibly go into my wife when my brothers in arms are out fighting the battles? He says, God forbid that I would do something that terrible. At that moment, Uriah shows himself to be a better man than David. So David tries one more time with the lie. So he says, Uriah, have one more night. Let's have dinner together, and you can go back to the battle tomorrow. And he gets him drunk. He, he liquors him up. Surely now, in, in this stupefied state, he will go home and sleep with his wife. The next morning, where is Uriah found? At the doorstep of the palace. Uriah is not going to give in. And so what does David do? He, he goes from being a slacker, an adulterer, and a liar to what? To a murderer. He ends up killing Uriah. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab. And sent it with Uriah. How's that for cold-blooded? So he put his seal on it. So Uriah, it's not like you have a little envelope. You go, oh, I wonder what the king wrote. Can't do that, right? So he brings his own death warrant to Joab. And it says this. Set Uriah at the forefront, the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And Joab's an accomplice. As he was besieging the city, some of the servants of David among the men fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. David uses his unwitting general to commit this act of murder. He assumed that Uriah would follow his urges and ignore his own honor, but Uriah was uncompromising. He refused to do the easy thing. I was reading again recently about uh, Abraham Lincoln's efforts to pass the 13th Amendment and how so many people were saying to him, just wait till the war's over. How so many people were saying to him, this just probably isn't the right time to try and accomplish this. And after he used all of the, 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 the power of the office of the presidency to push that forward and push it through, after the 13th Amendment was passed, someone asked him to speak to it, and he said, I, I was unwilling to compromise. I wanted full equality for blacks. I believe that a democracy must guarantee equal treatment for all people. And ultimately, that cost him his life as well. And here is Uriah, who is, who is honoring God and is doing the right thing. And David covers up his sin and compounds his guilt and sacrifices a man that is better than himself. That's also David. That's the man who wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But God's judgment is complete. And he does not allow this to stand. And so he sends the prophet Nathan to David. And David, Nathan says to David, Thus the Lord God says, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you from the hand of Saul. He reminds him, David, who's in the cave? Who's taking care of you? <laughs> that was me. I gave you your master's house and all the house of Israel and Judah. If this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? And to what evil in his and to do what is evil in his sight, 
You have struck down Uriah with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. God says, David, nothing goes unseen in my world. I see your heart and I know exactly what is going on there. You are, you are in rebellion against me. You are living an evil life. And God, David confesses his sin. David says, I'm the man. I have sinned against the Lord. And God is compassionate with David, but he also judges David. In other words, David represents you and me. David represents every person in this room this morning. Because I'm sure every person in this room, even to the youngest, you can look at your life and go, I've done some good things. I was, I was nice to my sister yesterday when I could have been mean to her. I, you know, I, I didn't cheat on a test that I could have cheated on when the teacher wasn't looking. I, I wasn't dishonest with my taxes last year when I really could have probably slipped a few thousand dollars by. We can all find areas where we've either gone on our way to be nice or we've just kind of done that. And we tend to want to focus on those things. We tend to want to look at that person in the mirror and say, you know, I'm doing pretty well. But there's a flip side to the coin, friends. Every other, every other, every one of us in this room can look at the other side of that of that coin, and say there are moments when I am selfish, when there isn't goodness and kindness in my life, but there's harshness and pettiness, and I'm judgmental. There's times when I'm compassionate, and serving, but there's times when I'm a terrible gossip or prideful. The lesson this morning is that we are David, and our hope is the same as David's. David's only hope was that God would be compassionate. And the only way God could be compassionate is if someone ultimately paid for that sin. And that's what the coming of Jesus is all about. It's about the justice of God being passed to Jesus instead of you and me. And that's why we say he is called the Christ. He is called the Messiah, the one who comes to redeem. He is the one who is our Savior. And that's exactly what we need. We need a Savior. We need one who knows the depths of our sin and loves us anyway. Which brings me back to my initial question. We'll wrap up with this. The type of church that we are going to be is not dependent upon the building size or shape or colors or location. The type of church we're going to be is dependent upon whether or not we understand ourselves correct theologically. <laughs> That yes, there is some of God's image, image in us. We are not as bad as we could be. But we are desperately wicked apart from Christ. In comparison to God's holiness, we have violated his law and we need a savior. And I want to go to a church. I want to be part of a spiritual family that gets that and understands it. Because the words I mentioned earlier, safe place, a humble place, a gracious place, a truthful place, all come out of the lives of people who understand how desperately they need a Savior and live lives in thankfulness to God for providing Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning that in Matthew's first chapter, we see someone like David who can inspire us one moment and the next moment can be an absolute villain. Father, I'm quite sure every person in this room has moments where we go, okay, I did that okay. That worked out all right. And there are other moments where we just, we don't even want to look in the mirror. We're so embarrassed by what we see and what's looking back at us. But Father, protect us from arrogance in the moments where, where you allow us to get it right. 
And Father, protect us from despair when we don't love you the way we should. Because both of those ignore what Jesus has come to do, which is to be our Savior. And we need a Savior. God, please make this a community of faith that gets that, that understands it, and that lives it for your glory and for our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.